This episode of the Unstoppable Recording Machine Podcast is brought to you by Solid State Logic. SSL is a manufacturer of high-end mixing consoles and recording studio software. For over 49 years, SSL's products have been at the heart of thousands of the most respected, timeless recordings. Solid State Logic. Thank you for listening. And now your host, A.L. Levy. All right, well, welcome to the Unstoppable Recording Machine Podcast. With me is none other than John Douglas and the one and only Jens Bogren. Welcome, guys. Thank you for being here. Thanks Thank for you me. for having us. Yeah, it's a, it's a pleasure uh, getting to talk to awesome people. So, Jens, um, you have been on this podcast before, so... If uh, anybody listening wants more Jens Bogren after this, just uh, type him into the search. Uh, we did an episode about two years ago. So with that said, I know that a lot has happened for you in the past two years because we've kind of been in touch with you on and off and uh, about scheduling, like now the mix and everything. And I know that there's been periods where you've just gone dormant working for like nine months straight. So was that one record? Like, did you spend nine months on one record? Uh, absolutely not. Okay. <laughs> but I guess the most life-changing thing that happened um, the last two years was my third uh, kid, actually. <laughs> oh, congratulations. Congrats. But uh, yeah, I I've been working, um, you know, on various uh, projects. But uh, the last year has been quite um, production-intense. But the next year is um, actually going to be spent mostly doing mixing and mastering. So that feels good. So and is that by design? Like you w want to take a break from yeah, producing? Yeah, it, it is. Nearly, this last year nearly killed me. So <laughs> um, it, for, for me, it's like vacation doing only mixing and mastering compared to full productions. So, Well, you did the production on the new Demo Borgir, right? Yeah. Which sounds... Phenomenal. Thank but you. I've heard that their records are very, very intense to make. Well, uh, they are intense uh, people, so <laughs> yeah. It's, um, but yeah, they've also done some other challenging stuff like the latest Amorphis album, which um, I don't know, great guys to work with, uh, but a very challenging record in, te in terms of arrangements and stuff so uh, definitely what's cha what's challenging about it uh well i guess that uh, the vision for the album sort of uh, grew um a little bit along the way and um um yeah we had um, a lot of people involved you know you get an idea like uh, hey we need a saxophone here or what about a choir part here and all these small things uh, they add up to you know becoming pretty uh, pretty massive arrangements in the end and um, at the same time as you're recording and trying to you know nail good vocal takes you have to sync with some choir arranger uh, down in Israel um, on this particular album uh, and uh, yeah singing lines over um, uh, WhatsApp to, <laughs> to help out on certain things. And yeah, it's just been massive. And uh, then the wife calls, it's like, yeah, we have a chaos here. One kid just <laughs> threw up and uh, you need to come home. <laughs> it's like, my God. So uh, yeah, it, it was a challenging year for various reasons. So you had multiple records that were not just your standard metal band setup, like multiple records with just expanded, expanded arrangements coupled with real life. Yeah, exactly. And I seem to be, you know, poor luck because I always get to work with those albums that seem to be I was about completely to, I was about to off say, the charts. I was about to say, that's, that sounds kind of like, a th I mean, not sounds like, I know that you're known for this, but seems like the these bands with super heavy arrangements uh, dense, not heavy. I don't want people to misunderstood why I said heavy, but with but you get to do records with super dense arrangements. Um, is, do you listen to music like that? Like, was that and did you intend for it to be that way, or has it just kind of evolved to that in terms of the clients you're getting? Um, 
I don't think that I've had so much to say about about that. You know, it's the um, uh, chain reaction of events that <laughs> has led up to the bands that I'm working with, I suppose. Uh, but um, you know, I do have sort of a my own personal musical background um, is definitely of the more challenging type. So. Uh, I guess I feel at home doing those sort of albums, but uh, it's nothing that I've asked for. Uh, actually, quite the opposite. Uh, every day that I put up a mix with 250 channels plus, I wish that I was doing uh, punk albums instead, you know. <laughs> well, uh, I mean, maybe it didn't help that the way that I guess the wider world found out about you was an Opeth record. That's when I first heard about you was an Opeth record, and those always have a million things on them. Uh, and, um, you know, so between that and watching those videos of Devin Townsend, um, and I know I know what goes into his records, um, just like, just seems to be like when you think of crazy arrangement metal, you think of your name. Please don't hate me for that. <laughs> no, I hate myself. <laughs> when you're working on stuff like that, um, take, for example, the Dimu record. Um, I, I was watching like one of the behind-the-scenes kind of teaser studio videos, and one I think one of the guitarists was mentioning like just kind of like the experience of sitting in the back of the room and watching the, the drum tracking sessions. Um, and, and I guess he seemed like he didn't really have a total idea of what you were listening for. Like, he'd be like, you know, the first take was great. And then they did like 10 more after that. And I had no idea why. Um, but for a complex record like that, is that something that you can describe or is that something you have trouble kind of communicating to, to, to people involved in the project is like, no, it has to be a certain way because X, Y, Z, that depends, really. I mean, some people are pretty sensitive uh, about that, like, uh, why are we doing more takes, uh, etc. But I think that um, quite often the musicians, at least the drummer in this case, is um, his own biggest uh, critic, you know. So, um, um, and sometimes it's it's more about them. I was happy with the fifth, you know, after five takes, and he want to try two more. <laughs> and, uh, right. Uh, and sometimes you need to limit uh, the musicians in that regard because you know that if you spend more energy here, you're gonna lose down the line instead. So uh, now, usually, I don't have a problem, you know, motivating um, or having to explain why we're doing another take or whatever. I get to, you know, people call me all kind of fascist names in the end, but uh, <laughs> usually I get away with that. <laughs> the. Uh is that a big thing you've had to learn how to do working with these huge records? I mean, again, huge in terms of arrangement. They're also really well-known bands, but huge in terms of arrangement. Uh, do you have to pace yourself or do you have to think about it in a time management sort of way to make sure that you and the band have the energy for it and also the time? to be able to do everything that needs to be done? Absolutely. I would say that that's probably the most important task for a producer, uh, that you need to, you have this budget to relate to, and you have this this time frame that could be, you know, stretched to a certain amount perhaps. But um, how do you spend that time in the best possible way for, you know, the best outcome of the album? It's probably not to spend six more takes on a, on a certain guitar take. It can be, but uh, that, um, what do you call it? That making that sort of, uh, help me with the word, assessment, the value. Or, mm -hmm. <laughs> um, opportunity cost. The, yeah. In business we say opportunity okay. cost. Yeah. Uh, very nice word you have there. Thank you. <laughs> well, it's just, it's just how much does the time cost the cost you it, yeah. to do, you know? Has your team expanded over the last uh, couple of years since since you were last on the podcast? Have you added more people to the, the Fascination Street team? Uh, two years ago, I don't think so. Uh, I have an assistant called uh, Linus Corneliuson, uh, who's um, 
since then has become a full-time employed. Uh, he used to be his own, but, but now he's, um, um, yeah, my slave completely, so to speak. Um, <laughs> awesome. And uh, we also have another full-time guy from uh, from Portugal who's doing like a long-term internship. Uh, it's probably going to be like, uh, I haven't told him, but one and a half, two years possibly. <laughs> and he's going right. to be here. So he's our new slave. So <laughs> he, doesn't, he doesn't know how long it's going to be. No, no, exactly. So he'll uh, find out. He'll yeah. fi- find I haven't out given, on the podcast. given him the key to the uh, you know the chains yet. So. <laughs> I, I'm just kind of interested in that whole uh, team building aspect to it because you, looking on the website, you have seven people listed, I think, and they're all well. Some of them are in you know a, a completely different studio, or they're working out of their own home studio, um, or working out of another city. Um, so you really only interact with uh, how many people do you from that seven people do you interact with on a on a project say like the demo record? Uh, well, I mean if, if there's if it's something that I produce uh, myself, then um, uh, my right hand is is my assistant, which would be uh, Linus, who deals with um, editing uh, and stuff. I used to do all that myself. But I have realized that it's it's not a smart move. So yeah, <laughs> uh, I've trained him over the years, and he's probably better than I am these days uh, in in terms of drum editing and um, some you know vocal editing and uh, whatever needs needs to be done. Uh, so that's very important for my sanity and to you know to keep um, um, happiness, to feel happy about the project all the time, uh, and also for the project to move forward because. The people in those bands, they are away from their homes and their families. And the more efficient I can do things without uh, compromising the quality, uh, you know, the, the better everything is going to be for, for everyone. So um, that's really important, my assistance. And um, uh, then I usually have a, a drum tech. It's not listed on the, on the, on the website, but that's also a pretty important uh, part. Um, and um, then my mastering engineer, Tony Lindgren. Usually, I don't do mastering myself for my own productions. You will see that that, that is a lie if you check uh, the credits. <laughs> but but, uh, but uh, that's uh, at least what, what I tried to have him master. Um, you know, to get a fresh, fresh ear on things. So uh, I would say three, four people um, usually, and like on this. Um, latest Amorphis album, we also had one of those seven people uh, is also a songwriter. So he co-wrote uh, one of the songs with Amorphis, uh, which um, Anneke from X Gathering uh, was singing. Um, so, um, yeah, I guess um, on and off three, four, possibly five people uh, on a production. When did you start uh, delegating like that? Like, when did you stop being a one-man show? When I got married. Oh, you got married a while ago, too. Yeah. <laughs> 11 two, years. Two th- uh, a, few, a few days ago. Yeah. Uh, well, I think that, um, yeah, I just realized that uh, the, the mental stress of doing everything yourself uh, because I'm, I'm a very picky guy and I work on these huge albums and it would take too long to, to complete and uh, you don't have mm-hmm. that time you know you have a release uh, schedule the bands are touring they need to write the songs they need to go into the studio and they have a, a, a master delivery date before they even have any songs written and you need to make the album in this period of time um, so uh, that's why I have decided to let go everything that I feel that I can let go uh, and still be able to gain from it on a mental health level <laughs> and also the, <laughs> the end result. Yeah, like uh, speaking of the website, um, just looking around on there, I was looking at the the form to to get you guys to master a record or a song and I was I was just really impressed by... On by for one, how slick it is, and how like well put together everything is, and it you know it, it takes care of all the information that you would need to know about the studio. But also, it's just like a like a four step process to submit your song to be mastered, and you'll get it back in a week or two from either you or Tony. Um, and that going along with the whole organization of of having four or five people working on a record, um, 
how involved do you get in in managing kind of the big picture of everything or or taking care of that kind of website stuff or the, the more just studio business type stuff? Or do you have someone who is uh, kind of overseeing that? Unfortunately, I'm doing all that myself, uh, at least when it comes to, to the vision. And then I have obviously a web designer, you know, helping out and uh, whatever. But uh, it's hard. Um, I have been trying. I think I reached out to uh, uh, Joe Sergis actually <laughs> once about <laughs> trying to help with the, this sort of, you know, he was offering uh, this sort of um, marketing, you know, help um, and whatnot. So, yeah, I have to do all that myself and uh, a few n- late nights uh, every few months I sit with all the papers you know trying to organize and get it to the uh, accountant and uh, yeah unfortunately I have to do everything <laughs> how about like, like um, session organization and just like general communication between one party to another or like uh, making sure that everybody has the right versions of files or like is is there uh, is that something that you um, I know some people are more anal about it than others as far as like file naming and uh you know this has to go here i i did notice uh when we were getting the nail the mix files from you 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 have your own like file delivery ftp server or something like that um which not a lot of people have but you know that's nice to have just like a dedicated portal for bands to be able to get their their material from you yeah um i'm not sure if there's a question there but no uh, (laughs) but um I'm not sure if we're that anal, but you know, there's a lot, many years' experience. You know what what it takes, and uh, obviously, um, my assistants uh, are helping me prepping the sessions before a mix, for example. And then there are certain ways, or at least rough guidelines, how I want things labeled and organized. And and if they fuck it up, you know, they get to see the the EMI. And, uh, <laughs> the other side, the yeah, other yeah. side of Jens. <laughs> <laughs> and uh, yeah, so I guess you know we're just working so close together for for so long, so it just works out, I suppose. Do you do you have like file naming protocols and things like that, uh, just to make life easier? And if so, did you invent it? Um, I don't think so. I mean, I do have sort of a protocol because I always seem to want to label things roughly the same way. And I guess that's uh, invented. It's sort of a Swinglish version, you know, where I <laughs> make some English and Swedish words. Um, and um, yeah, I don't like when I cannot see the the names on a track, for example, in Pro Tools, which is the software that I work with. So we try to shorten things and, you know, uh, get a good overview. But I'm not Daniel Bergstrand. I think he's pretty anal about those things. But uh, I probably a little less, a little more chaos. Hello, Daniel, if you're listening, we love you. But uh, Absolutely. <laughs> I, I was thinking of something that you said to me in an email. So when we were deciding on which, uh, which way to go for Nail the Mix, um, and by the way, I could not be happier with um, having Air Apparent on there. It's yeah, I was so excited amazing. to see that. So thank you for being able to help that happen. But uh, so, you know, we talked about lots of different possibilities for a while. Um, and one thing that you said that I'd like to I'd like to talk about some, because I'm curious, is you said that you think that the, the new demo, even though it would probably never happen anyways, uh, it's just probably too difficult for the scope of Nail the Mix. And, I, and I've and i known previous people who have also mixed their records with those types of records, and they say it's the most difficult thing they've ever had to mix. So I would like to talk about what what you found difficult about it um, and what what the challenge is for you on a record like that that has the orchestra and multiple different types of vocals and more and more and more and more. Yeah, when it comes to demo specifically, there are two things I would say that are, uh, that makes it quite difficult. And it's uh, very specific vocal effects um, all the time orchestrated by um, uh, Stian or Shagrat or 
whatever you would like to call him. Um, and those things are not super easy, easily, you know, recreated. And of course, those could be printed in, in the context of uh, Nail the Mix. Um, and on, on the, this particular album, uh, I shouldn't take away the magic for people <laughs> listening to it, but it's a very complex uh, orchestral situation on the album and it's mm -hmm. not a good thing <laughs> it's uh, because um, the band really wanted to use some of their pre-production stuff and I really wanted to use another uh, orchestral arranger <laughs> so there's a very <laughs> unholy uh, combination of those like um, going on on the album and that makes it really messy the whole session so that's why it would be difficult I mean I do a lot of other stuff um, that I think is just as difficult as, as Demu uh, you know like uh, um, even Rotting Christ or um, Septic Flesh or something like that. Mm -hmm. uh, Septic Flesh even more so since they have uh, like a full real orchestra with um, both um, full brass section and full string section and choir section and everything. So many people would probably not even be able to load those sessions uh, on their systems. What's uh, What do you find to be the most difficult thing about the orchestra with blazing death metal or black metal? Well, the difficulty lies in um, the laws of physics. The more stuff you, you add, uh, the more, you know, ambience or reverb or natural reverb that you have, the more, you know, frequencies and um, space gets stolen in the mix. So what you thought was a killer drum sound when you mix the drums, you know, two hours later when you have put in not only a full guitar section and four, you know, quad track guitars and uh, lead guitars and screaming vocals and a big choir, but you also have a full string section and everything. There's nothing left. You just have this small, the tiniest drums ever heard on an album <laughs> going on somewhere <laughs> and then you well, what should I do and then you go back and then the band says oh, no you need to raise the orchestra and uh, I cannot hear the flute and you know <laughs> it, it just goes on uh, so it, it's it, it, it I, I think that it takes a lot of um, experience how, how to mix uh, to be able to get uh, a metal sound and a full orchestra um, and uh, yeah, sometimes it's not that, you know, difficult. It doesn't matter that much if it's not the fattest metal band on the planet because the orchestra is so important, but other bands really require that uh, basic heft, you know, no compromise band, but still the orchestra should be mm -hmm. really loud. And that is just loss of physics that it, it creates some, it takes some skill to to get it working. Do you, do you have to do a ton of, Automation. I'm just wondering because I remember back in the day uh, when the Death Cult Armageddon mix came out, that was like my favorite mix for a long time. Um, you know, the classic demo that I think uh, Frederick Nordstrom mixed it. And uh, the thing that I noticed about it, even back then, was that there had to be a ton of automation because if you go part by part, in one part, the guitars will be loud and then they'll be quiet and they'll be loud again. It's the same with everything else. Like the volumes vary wildly from section to section, but there's always something in front keeping your attention, um, the, always. So it seems like the mix, the automation had to be, keep on altering to keep something as the main focus while every, and then a hierarchy after that of all the other instruments and where they fall into place in that hierarchy. So like, it, it's really interesting you follow one instrument through an entire song and just listen to the volume levels it's at. Um, it's, you know, it seems schizophrenic or something, but, uh, or, or just say the kick drum or something. You just pick, pick an instrument and listen from start to finish. And it's a very, very interesting thing. So I'm just wondering, uh, are, when you do these types of mixes, is it automation out the ass for you? Of 
course. I mean, you have to automate a lot. I guess I would try to mix so it doesn't feel like the kick is going in and out or, <laughs> or the guitars are going in and out. And sometimes you just need to, to uh, trick the brain that something is louder than it really is by ramping it a little bit, you know, that it, when mm -hmm. it enters, it's, it has a certain volume and then you can slightly decrease it and, you know, work with that type of um, things for, for things to take attention um, without completely messing things uh, up, I suppose. But yeah, automation. I, did, I didn't mean, by the way, that on that record that the that things disappear or sound like too small suddenly or whatever. We're talking like small changes that yeah. like I can hear a dB change or something mm -hmm. that maybe your casual listener wouldn't be able to hear. But um, but yeah, so you know, like you drop something a dB to make room for something else kind of stuff. I don't mean like suddenly you're listening and the guitars go down 12 dB or something <laughs> something insane like that. Um so so you so you are doing constant detailed automation so and just to reiterate what you said so, so as so that you can't tell that things are really getting louder or softer but to make room for all the new elements that are coming in. Yeah, I mean, it completely depends on the song as well. Usually these type of songs with Dimu and also with Opeth, there are, the different parts are pretty different from each other as well. So um, I guess it will come natural that you need to either automate a lot or even, uh, you know, duplicate and start over with a new mm -hmm. uh, type of setting for, uh, let's say, if the, the vocals suddenly go down in range a lot, but it's supposed to be the same voice, then you might need a new track for that to, uh, to make that work. And um, the same goes with... Um, with violins, for example, if there are violins playing in a certain riff um, and there are heavy guitars and drums and suddenly that figure keeps on playing but the guitars and drums stops, then the violins will sound really thin and you need to automate also EQ and uh, yeah, whatever needs to be done basically and usually there's a lot of stuff. <laughs> Would you like loop a section and just kind of mix that section in isolation and then kind of move on to the next session? Or do you kind of listen to, say, a couple sections at a time? Or is there a kind of general process that you go through for that? I mean, the general process is that I usually mix the, the most difficult and heavy uh, parts first, uh, which typically is the chorus, if there is such a thing <laughs> in, in, in uh, the song you work on. Uh, so that whenever that happens, it should sound the best. So not like the first verse sounds great and then everything falls into, you know, like a house of cards <laughs> when the chorus comes. So, so that's the standard thing for me to try to keep the work on the most dense part, make that really work, and then you take the other parts from there uh, and do whatever automation or new tracks that you need to, to do. But uh, the mix should be optimized when it's mostly difficult, so to speak. So lots of mixers prefer to mix uh, non-attended from the clients. Um, I know me personally, I always prefer that. But, uh, you know, I first remember seeing that video, Devin Townsend coming to to you for that mix. And I almost feel like, how could you mix a record like that without having someone like him there? And so I'm just wondering, on these super complicated records, where obviously the artist has a, a big opinion and a big vision on what it should be like, and it's not just rhythm guitars and leads and, you know, it's yeah. something huge. Uh, what do you prefer? I mean, I definitely prefer to mix unattended uh, for the better part um, of the mix. But it does depend. Um, that The Devin Townsend album that I mixed called Deconstruction, that is the most complex album that I've ever mixed. And uh, it's one of my favorite records, just okay. by the way. <laughs> That's cool. Uh, and that was the whole idea. Devin, Devin's vision for that album was that this needs to sound like the most complex album ever done. <laughs> okay, thank you, I said. Um, and um, 
for that album, it, it was a must to have him there because uh, you wouldn't believe the amount of stuff he put there, and there was I no logic, <laughs> no logic to what should be in front or or, or not. You know, that would come. Even though if I could have an artistic vision of that and thinking that, yeah, this is great, you know, if he would have a completely different vision, that would be equally fine. And uh, after all, it's his album. So for that album, I think I spent like a week just getting every all the basics up. And then we spent another, I don't know how much time, but it, it took a long time um, and basically um, worked everything in, you know, according to, to his um, vision. And uh, we had some fights and, uh, you know, hugs, kisses, etc. Uh, and uh, in the end, I think we made something that was, uh, uh, that he was really happy with, at least. I don't, I haven't listened to it since then, so I don't remember. Too much trauma. <laughs> <laughs> Do you ever listen to your own work afterwards? I mean, it has to be, it has to go a certain period of time when you have released all the little hang-ups you had about it, then I suppose it's fine. Uh, I remember one time I uh, I might have said this in the previous podcast, so it might be weird if you listen to that one as well. But uh, I was going in my car and I heard this like snare sound um, on some song. It's like, my God, this is really good snare sound. And then I turn it up, it's like, oh, that was me. <laughs> that was <laughs> old Catatonia album that I did. And... Um, uh, so, so that's a good thing then, if you can listen back and you don't remember anything, you just can sort of, you know, enjoy it as regular listener. But... Um, something similar happened to me once. I was on tour and there was something playing over the house PA while we were loading in. And I was just like, that riff is cool. It's just like, what is that? It sounds so familiar. Like, what is that riff? And just, uh, you know, leave the venue pick up some gear, come back in. It's still playing. It's like, this sounds so familiar. Yeah, it turns out it's a band I recorded. I totally forgot. <laughs> I didn't even remember what the name was. Yeah, yeah, but yeah. Happens a lot. <laughs> <laughs> I'm sure. Uh, one of the other records, that, uh, or one of the bands that I've kind of been following for a while, and you've worked on their last four records, I believe, is uh, Leprous. Um, mm. And it's kind of a different, I guess, changing directions from the more... I mean, their their mixes sound fairly dense, but it's not it's not a deconstruction or anything like that. Um, what what has that relationship between you and the band been like? And um, just I guess thinking about having repeat clients and getting uh, sort of a trust built up between you and the client to where you know they were recording some of the guitars and bass on their own, I believe, and um, and you've had different roles between. Uh, either tracking drums and then mixing or just mixing. Um, so, so what's that been like? Well, with Leprous, I suppose they were probably around 10 years old when I mixed their first album. Wow. Um, <laughs> I don't know, but, <laughs> but they were actually um, the, um, like the, the live band for Ishan. Mm-hmm. Um, and um, those guys, okay, yeah, yeah, they they were young when they came out, really young, yeah, yeah. yeah I remember them. Okay, they just stand out to me as an example of a band that's been, you know, started young and has been really consistent in quality, and you know, they they found a sound that they really like with you, apparently, and um, it's just been on an upward trajectory ever since then. Yeah, absolutely. I think they've been searching uh, a lot for their sound, though. You know, um, for every album, they've had a little bit different visions, and they changed the drummer into this really crazy guy um, for the last two albums, I think. And um, for the latest album, they wanted to step up a little bit, and they actually... I didn't record drums there. There was David Castillo, uh, one of the seven guys on the website, mm-hmm. uh, in our Stockholm facility that recorded, um, uh, well, uh, most everything, I think, on that album. And then I mixed it. Um, and they wanted to, you know, go a little bit more organic or, or whatever. But um, So I think they're definitely searching around a little bit for what they want. But they've grown older and uh, they've been touring a lot and they've you know, drawn inspiration from other bands uh, on the road or whatever they listen to. And, uh, well, I guess I've just been happy being able to, to help them uh, along the way because I love the band and, and the guys are great. So, Well, you know, on that topic of trust, I don't read Blabbermouth. 
very often, but for some reason I was at Blabbermouth the other day and Amorphous were on there and they said that you could sum up the reason they came back to you in one word, trust. That was the headline. Uh, actually, that stood out to me. Um, it was very nice of them to say, but how have you thought about how you go about establishing that kind of trust with artists? Is it just something that happens naturally? Or, I mean, are, it, it's no way that artists just trusted you out the gate when you were starting. You had to get to that point, right? Yeah, I guess these days it's, I would say that it's fairly easy for for me it's uh, mm. it seems like people you know when they come to me they i guess they're they know already, the deal yeah they're already confident that they're gonna get you know something they probably like or, or you know they can reference to something else i did or, or whatever and then we might have a discussion about um, what, what could be unique for them or, or whatever but um, it used to be much more difficult you know in, in the in, in the early days of my career where especially, it seems like these days, I work more and more with a little more mature uh, people, perhaps. But when I was younger, I guess I also was working more with the debuts and, um, you know, young bands. And uh, usually young bands are really nervous, you know, about everything, mm -hmm. uh, about their own instrument. And, uh, you know, and, and they uh, throw different references you know and uh, we need to have that snare sound from this album and we want you know and it, it just becomes a really messy type of production so that way it's it's better these days when people approach me and uh, they might have some visions and then they want me to do my thing sort of and then uh, hopefully that's you know something they like or, or we adjust or, or whatever and uh, something hopefully good uh, comes out of it so yeah trust is pretty easy i must say for us who's been working for a while in the business i guess well there's no there's no way you'd be working this long without having established it i think oh there's always new clients to rip off <laughs> <laughs> for those clients who who do end up recording some amount of their record themselves if not all of it um do you give them, um, like, how much instruction ahead of time would you give? If they say, we're going to track this album ourselves, but we want you to mix it, um, do you have, like, a kind of a, a summary of, like, these are the things that you should pay attention to and or, or notes for the tracking engineer if there is one? Yeah, it's a sensitive uh, issue. I mean, if the band track on their own uh, then I guess it, it's fine then I could come up with whatever instructions uh, needed if they have that sort of you know um, schedules so they actually approach me before they start tracking <laughs> it's more like hey we have recorded <laughs> this album can you mix it tomorrow and and, um, and that way I'm happy to, to assist and sometimes I even listen to um, we're in you know we're setting a drum sound now can you please listen to this and then I give instructions please mm -hmm. you know use uh, point the microphones the overheads a little bit like this uh, try this try to raise the pitch a little bit on the snare uh, whatever you know can help them and um, vocal sound is also something that I think is very important and very hard to to adjust if it's really bad, so I can help them with you know uh, whatever the microphone choice or uh, placement in the in the room or uh, stuff like that. And um, these days, I guess it's pretty easy. You can record with with DI for bass and guitars, and, and that's a big chunk of the sound that could happen in the mix. Um, but um, what was the original question? <laughs> I forgot. Oh, just do you have like a standard set of instructions oh, yeah, that you send yeah, to people, yeah, or is it kind yeah. of more oh, yeah. case by I, case? I had, a, I had a train of thought there because I said it was a sensitive topic. Because it's also, I as a mixing engineer, if there is another producer involved or another, you know, semi producer mixing person, mm -hmm. um, I don't want to take away that person's own perspective by 
sitting here in Sweden trying to, oh yeah, and you know, do that and that and try <laughs> sure. to do that. Because I'm not there, you know, if I would be there, I would try things. Uh, it's not like I have this um, standard that it has to be exactly like that and that. I always try things. I know sort of what works, of course, but every situation is unique, you know, uh, that, uh, well, for this kick drum, this microphone doesn't seem to do it. For this room, we would need to try to do this and this. Um, so I sort of, you know, encourage them to to try things and try to do the best of the situation. And I'm happy to, to listen to things um, and give them some feedback for that. All, all I can say is if I was the tracking engineer on a project and I knew that you were mixing and you were willing to take the time to give us some feedback or thoughts, I would do my best to at least try to, you know, maybe you wouldn't agree after trying it, but I would do my best to at least try because you know what you're talking about. I mean, it, uh, I have, some guys have ego problems. To where you you don't want to. I've I've actually seen this happen. That's why I'm saying that. Where the mixing engineer uh, contacted the tracking engineer and uh, made a few requests, and the tracking engineer fucking blew up. And the, these are guys that are uh, you know mm-hmm. making real records. We're not talking. We're not talking like amateurs or kids. Mm-hmm. So yeah, it was like. A, if they had been in person, they would have. It would have become a physical confrontation. Mm-hmm. Like they went nuts over it, and all he was doing was ask, like, asked for a few, a few things on the drum recording. Yeah. It was crazy. I couldn't. I I was shocked by the level of, <laughs> the level of explosiveness. But um. So yeah, you know, I, I guess you kind of need to be careful with who you make suggestions to and when. Yeah, I guess. I mean, usually it's fine, or at least I don't have to witness the explosion that happens from (laughs) (laughs) imposing ideas. But uh, uh, yeah, I'm usually happy to to say things um, to those, you know, give some advice. But uh, yeah, I don't want to destroy the creative process by... Yeah, for sure. Oh, um, we have some questions here from the audience that I'd like to get to before we have to end this. Um, so here's one from Alex Nasla. Um, Alex, by the way, is the best harpsichord player I've ever heard <laughs> in my life. Um, if there was an, if there was an Olympics for harpsichord, he'd be gold medalist for every country. But, uh, so Alex is wondering how has your mixing process or mindset changed now compared to when you did the Opeth record? Watershed. That's a difficult question. Um, I don't know if my mindset has changed so much. Um, my methods have changed because uh, I used to be on on console, and I, there used to be the band coming in in the room, and we finalized the mix, and then we went over to the next mix. Um, that doesn't happen anymore because the industry changed a lot and I had to change with it. So um, um, I guess the biggest thing was that at that time I probably mixed from start to end um, one song and really made it ready and then I couldn't look back. <laughs> uh, I think that was the case on, on Watershed as well, or at least in broad terms. Um, these days, I usually make it like 95% ready and then I, you know, move on to the next song and then I go back the next day with fresh ear and, you know, can make some adjustments and uh, uh, whatnot. And um, my, I mean, the most important thing when mixing is not the tools. Um, it's not the speakers either or the room, uh, I'm afraid. It is the level of experience the brain has to mm-hmm. mix, you know, to hear things and to hear what needs to be done and, and that sort of thing. And that I have developed. Uh, I can, If I listen back to this Opeth mix, um, um, there are some really nice things about it, but, but there are also some things that I would have considered it to be 90% done. And today I would have completed it, so to speak. 
who knows? Perhaps I fuck up and do a much worse mix on the other <laughs> mix. But um, that could also be the case because I'm not in in the mindset for that album right now. But um, but I guess that, that has is, never uh, happened, by the way, on Nail the Mix. Never. All right. Okay. So I'll be the yeah. first. <laughs> <laughs> um, no. So yeah, my my brain is more developed uh, these days uh, than it was back then. Well, what? It's been 11 years, right? Yeah. Has there been any kind of technique changes in the last time, uh, since the last time you were on the podcast? Like, I'm thinking in particular, I remember you mentioned uh, sometimes using Drumatom to reduce bleed in drum mics um, or using a de-esser on the snare track. Um, I know that's one of the areas I've been interested in, is trying to clean up drums better and be more efficient and more... Um, less destructive with it, I guess. Has yeah. there been any um, just random techniques that have come up in the last couple years with uh, technology or with anything else? Uh, I just need to uh, say something about uh, using deesser on the snare drum. It only valids for uh, hardware 902 deesser from DBX. Uh, do not try a software <laughs> deesser on the snare. It will fuck up your face and uh, will not work uh, unless someone can prove me wrong there. But I have never tried anything that, that really works uh, there. So uh, be careful. But if you have a 902 deesser, uh, Go for it. We um, actually, uh, two months ago, I believe, because we did an all analog uh, nail the mix, and yeah. I believe that the guy used one of those yeah. DSers. Yeah, Paul Levitt used it. I'm 99.9% sure that's what it was and sounded great. So It does. Unfortunately, it does. <laughs> it, really, it really does. If you showed up in a studio without one, do you have any other tricks for uh, reducing cymbal yeah. bleed and various drum mics? Yeah, absolutely. I don't use it anymore because uh, mine were in heavy need of service. I have a bunch and they're all at my service engineer right now and he never fixes things. So uh, <laughs> <laughs> I've learned to, to live without them. But I do use a Dramatom a little bit. It's a very... You can destroy things with that plugin too, but, but if you dial it, right, dial it right and only use it where needed, uh, it can be a really uh, lifesaver. There is also one plugin that uh, David Castillo showed me uh, not too long ago called the Wilkinson Debleeder plugin. Have you tried that? Mm -hmm. I've seen it. I haven't tried it. It's crazy I, good. I haven't tried it, but uh, I've heard of it. I'm not I endorsed. I know him. It's so cheap, so I don't, I don't have to be. It, it, it is actually extremely good. Uh, I would advise to, to try it out. It works uh, more like a gate. He, but He's going to hear this, and you're going to get everything he ever makes. Well, I from so. now on. <laughs> I will definitely check uh, that out. It is actually crazy good. And they also make one for, for DSP, so... Um, if you're on Pro Tools and do tracking sessions with the, with the uh, AAX DSP uh, system, then you can use it without latency, which has been amazing for me, actually. So, And I usually keep those all the way into to the mix. Um, yeah. Um, I don't know what kind of life-changing technique there has been otherwise. Uh, We're thinking about the Opeth, as you mentioned before, um, if you could like change or update one thing about the watershed mix, or if one thing stood out to you uh, that you would improve like 10%. Uh, what stands out to you about that mix? What, what can we expect in the new improved air apparent? Or is that something that'll just happen in real time? Yeah, I guess. Um, I don't know. It was a little trickier with automation back then. So uh, I could probably fine tune some of those songs on that album with automation a little better these days. Um, and uh, it's a little mid heavier than I would use mix these days, I suppose. Um, I probably mix a little brighter these days. You know, old age, <laughs> less trouble. <laughs> it seems like the whole um, the industry has gone to, to a more yeah. brighter, brighter sound. So, um, And uh, yeah, but I don't know. I'm happy with that. Um, I would probably have recorded the guitars sound a little different, but I do like how they sound. So, uh. Well, we have a question here about the guitars, actually, from Anthony Giacomo, which said, 
The guitar tone on this is outstandingly smooth from the get-go. What kind of process was used to achieve that right off the amp? And are the second set of guitar tracks just a second amp or a second mic on the same cab? You could uh, try that yourself uh, if you pan those to the side. You could, you could immediately hear if you get it like a mono center sound or if they spread out and live their own uh, lives, uh, whether it's a secondary uh, track or, or just a secondary microphone. And um, um, actually, I'm only 99% sure that uh, it is two unique performances there. If I remember it correctly, we used... Um, uh, it's actually just when the Marshall uh, JVM amp came out mm -hmm. and um, uh, they were going um, nuts about that. Um, so, so that became our main sound um, and then we have a Mesa rectifier as the secondary uh, one to complement the first one. Um, I'm going to talk a little bit more about that I suppose uh, on the Nail the Mix actual session, how I usually think with uh, building up the guitar sounds. Uh, but yeah, it's, it's a process about trying different combinations and uh, choosing whatever seems to work the best. Um, and I don't think there is any real special tricks to that guitar sound. It's uh, just, uh, you know, a lot of pain <clears throat> and time that uh, spent placing the, the microphones and uh, a combination of microphones and finding the right blend and, and phase between them and, uh, and then printed straight, summed straight into uh, the system. It's not recorded different mics on different tracks. I usually try to avoid that. And a really good guitar player. Absolutely. Yeah. And guitars. Yeah. 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 And I... fresh strings. <laughs> yeah. Uh, that stuff is so important. So here's one from Andrew Tang. Um, in Ghost Reveries and The Great Cold Distance, what gain channel and mode was used on the dual rectifier? Was it boosted or unboosted for rhythm guitar? I'm very curious. Do you even remember? That's kind of detailed. No, no, it's a long time ago. <laughs> yeah, I was going to say. It's, um, uh, but, but I'm pretty sure, I mean, it's, it's the red channel. Um, and uh, yeah, <laughs> that's probably about it. I think it's, it's a two-channel. Uh, dual rectifier, if I remember it correctly, an old version. But I'm, I cannot verify that. I think last time you mentioned that you were um, digging the uh, the diesel VH4 as like one of your main kind of go-to amps. Is is that changed, or is that still kind of your go-to? Uh, I love it. The VH4 and uh, my uh, dual rectifier pre 500 uh, series are amazing amps, in my opinion. I love them. Um, and then I have a Savage 120 that sees some use uh, as well, and a bunch of other amps. But the the VH4 and Mesa is always seem to come back. Okay, here's a good question. This one is from Bo Burchell. Uh, if you're not familiar with him, he's actually been on Nail the Mix before. He's a great, great mixer. And he was in the band Seosin. And uh, he was wondering, how do you approach mixing records like Ling, that are in different languages compared to Swedish or English. Do you find not knowing the lyrical content makes it more difficult or eliminates that variable from the emotional equation of the song? It's a very good question. Um, the thing is, uh, I would say that it's hard uh, uh, to, to mix on a language that you don't understand. And sometimes that is also the case, like mixing for Japanese bands, uh, Every time I did that, like Deering Gray, if you know the band, uh, crazy band, mm -hmm. um, yeah. there I always got like a, um, a text file with the lyrics where they had pointed out like the syllables that needed to, to, to come up. <laughs> because it didn't make sense to me that those were supposed to be pushed. It was nothing about the volume. But the Japanese language was is, is apparently uh, works in a way that uh, it can almost change the meaning. I think that's how someone explained it to me. If you don't have the right uh, emphasis on, on certain mm -hmm. things, and um, so that that has been uh, a little weird. But uh, I've mixed for some uh, Finnish bands, for example, where I don't understand a single uh, word, even though. Finland is just our neighbors. They have a completely different language tree. Um, so 
And on those, people always have told me that, oh, we, we never had this great vocals before, or, you know, we can hear every word. And that's probably because I don't understand it. So that's some, somehow, since I don't know the lyrics, I seem to place the volume better than someone who hears mm -hmm. the lyrics and has learned it and hear it over and over again, then it's easy to undermix the vocal level. Um, so, uh, yeah, I would say that it's give and take on that question. <laughs> All right, here's one from Benjamin Mueller, which is, love what you did on the 2014 Arch Enemy record. The drum sound is simply mind-blowing. My guess is the use of some artificial reverb IR to enhance the real room tracks. I'd like to know how much room sample were used and how you process it all together to get that massive wall of sustained ringy smack magic to happen. Also, what's your favorite snare for tracking nowadays and what heads do you usually use? Answer as much or as little of that as you would like. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. Uh, well, I cannot, you know, remember specifically how I did on that album, but I do usually use uh, a, d a different setup of samples where I try to to gain one sample that, you know, sounds, uh, that can add uh, to the snare sound that I'm sort of envisioning, uh, or can add whatever lacks in, in the real snare. And uh, I usually have a sample that just brings uh, the click, or, you know, the transient, and another one that just gives ring, that doesn't have a transient at all and another one that brings ambience and depending on the track i would use you know use them a little differently or, or perhaps not at all um, but but that's probably the approach i'm using together with quite a lot of uh, um, parallel compression and usually perhaps stacked with a few different parallel compressors that do different things a little bit the same way as i use different samples um, that also makes it pretty easy to automate between parts. Let's say if there's a verse with no rhythm guitars, you can easily quickly come down with uh, ambience uh, microphones if that's what you want, or, or ringy sample, you probably want to go down with a little bit because they get eaten up when there are rhythm guitars. Um, yeah, so, so that's the approach I use for that. Um, I don't remember the second question, but the last question about the heads. Uh, I prefer pretty thin heads, even though I had to change them a lot. Uh, I prefer uh, Remo Ambassador head. I think that's the best sounding head. Uh, Evan, Evans is not as good, in my opinion. Uh, they have become better. Uh, of, of course, they come out with new revolutions for their <laughs> drum heads every year, but... Uh, <laughs> Still, they're only half as good as Remo. Um, anyway. <laughs> my, I was at a studio that was enforced by Evans, and we just went and bought Remos anyways. Yeah, yeah, yeah of course. Yeah. Uh, but now, there is actually one um, drum head that I've been using successfully from Evans lately. That's called the UV-1. Uh, it's like a, the finish is different. It's like semi-white or something, and, and that uh, is actually as good as, uh, as an ambassador. So, but, but, but for that album, it's definitely an ambassador if it's 2014, I would say. Um, what was the other, there was a question in between What's there. your favorite snare these ah, days for oh, yeah, tracking? Yeah. Ah, it depends, really That's depends. That's a tough one. Yeah, on the drummer. But I have an old Black Beauty that's fantastic. Nothing like the new Black beauties. They are black uglies, in my opinion. But the old <laughs> ones just seem to have something that, that works. Yeah, uh, they're great. Yeah, or whatever um, supraphonic or uh, super sensitive uh, supraphonic uh, that I can find. Aluminium or uh, this these uh, black beauties are fantastic snares. Sometimes they have a rim that is a little... Uh, forgiving, which makes them really easy to track with. But for some drummers, it's better with a little higher rim to get a little more of the uh, the rim shot. So sometimes I uh, change the the actual rim um, on the Black Beauty to to get a little bit more transient, perhaps. But um, mm -hmm. yeah, but I, I always try everything. I have like 10, 12 snares, and I usually, you know, see what kind of shape they are in for for th this week and. Uh, then I try five, six, you know, record, and then we evaluate empirical way of yeah. working. For for samples, do you end up 
um, usually using samples of the drum that you recorded, or do you have a standard set of samples that you pick from usually? And how how many would you how many options would you give yourself if you were going to pick uh, let's say a snare drum samples for a record? How many would you go through before you pick your final four? Yeah. Um, perhaps this relates back to the question what I've changed in my methods. I have too many samples and uh, I try too many. I can spend a full day on, on um, uh, you know, nailing a, a drum sound for an important album uh, just because it um, takes a lot of time, you know. Uh, even though I know 99% what it's going to be in the end, I, I still usually takes the time to actually <laughs> go through and... Um, Really uh, see what Confirm. I, I can do. Yeah, yeah, see what I can find or, or do differently. But yeah, I have a, a pretty big selection of standard stuff that, that I use. Um, I usually do not use things from the actual session. Um, I just never had a really successful time doing so. Um, Thank you. <laughs> finally, somebody, finally, somebody admitted it. Yeah. I don't know. That's, I, it's never worked for me either. Is that's why I'm saying that. Yeah, and and I, I usually think that you know I do what the best I can with that, and then I want to whatever that doesn't have, I want to add with with samples. Uh, yeah, um, right. But it's only going to reinforce what's already there if you use yeah. a sample of the actual drum. If you're trying I to mean, change the character, in, in, then. In theory, that that is a good good thing, I suppose. But uh, I don't know. For me, uh, that uh, has never really worked. But I do have some really really good samples that I've have done myself because I always do a sample session when I record, and some of them over the years, at least two, <laughs> have been very successful, <laughs> and <Sure>. I <laughs> and I end up uh, coming back to them, you know, uh, mm. bringing them into to my mixes, uh, and then I try to to pair with, with other, other things. Unfortunately, I can end up with uh, between four and eight samples. I know it's horrible, but uh, it's the truth. <laughs> I've seen worse, so, so yeah. No. So, oh, this is final question. This one's from Dave Crichton, which is, you've worked on a lot of material where you managed to make something that is objectively heavy as balls sound very accessible with almost pop sensibilities. I'm thinking of things like Porcelain Heart off Watershed or the bass-driven bit in Mediocrity Wins by Leprous. Could you talk a bit about how you achieve this and also whether you ever encounter resistance from bands in this area? How I managed to soften their heavy music. Is that the question here? <laughs> More, I, I don't know if that's what he means or if he means how you get it to sound so uh, legitimately poppy or something. Um, really really good at heavy stuff and then they go to the clean part and it's like god why did you even do that what are you <laughs> thinking um but the like the clean parts like opeth is a great example or maybe the best stuff they do in some ways like it's uh so maybe he's wondering how you go about achieving that in your productions getting the the cleaner parts to sound just as good as the the heavier stuff. And um, the, th the thing about the bands pushing back is I figure that these bands that you're working with, uh, that's part of their vision. I'm imagining. Yeah, I suppose. Uh, even if that's the question or whether uh, making the heavy parts, uh, you know, sound accessible or, or whatever, I don't know. Uh, <laughs> I have no agenda. <laughs> I just do what I think sounds uh, good to me, you know. Uh, and uh, it's sometimes the bands think that, you know, uh, we need the guitars louder, we need to make this heavier, or sometimes uh, the opposite, uh, we want this more keyboard-based, or uh, the clean vocals must come up, the grunts must come down. Um, I don't know. It's it's becomes a mixture of my vision and, and, and the band's vision, and uh, it's just me crafting sounds. I guess I'm I'm pretty. I don't like when things stand out too much. You know, uh, I've been crazy, especially back in the day. I was crazy about trying to notch away things that stood out. I, I really try hard not to uh, these days, uh, but. Um, uh, let's say that I, 
I listen more to Tori Amos and uh, Porcupine Tree than uh, Carcass, perhaps. Perhaps that's the reason. <laughs> that's a good answer. I like that. Yeah. I mean, uh, the thing is that a band like Opeth isn't, I mean, I wasn't there, but don't they want their their soft parts to sound beautiful? Isn't that the, isn't that the, the deal? And same with Leprous, too. I'm thinking of that, the the song he mentioned. It's got like kind of a disco beat kind of thing and clean vocals. So it's very, yeah, it's not what you would expect from a typical metal production. But uh, in in the case of both Leprous and uh, Opeth, it, it's it's more about their songs than anything else, I suppose. Yeah. Uh, so, yeah, um, I mean, those parts didn't end up in those songs by accident. No. Or perhaps they, perhaps did. they did. Who knows? <laughs> Maybe they did. What an accident. <laughs> a big accident. Um, all right. Well, Jens, thank you so much for coming on the podcast again. Nice uh, being here. It's been a pleasure having you. And um, we will see you on the 28th for Nail the Mix. I'm very, very excited to be coming to your town and ruining your life for three days. <laughs> Absolutely. <laughs> uh, yeah. I haven't said this before, but uh, I have... Uh, set up the rig on my boat, so we're gonna be on the water doing the mix. Uh, I'm very nice. excited about that. Joey <laughs> loves boats, by the way. Right. Joey will be very excited. Nice one. All right, man. Have a great rest of your night. To get in touch with the URM podcast, visit urm.com/podcast and subscribe today.